Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, one month to the war in Ukraine with President Joe Biden in Poland, the Russian economy crushed under international sanctions and widespread destruction in the cities of Ukraine. We'll try to understand what's next in the greatest war in Europe in decades. But before that, here at home in Israel, a painful terror attack and the rise of extremist ISIS cells within the country. We'll try to understand why it's happening right now. On Sunday night in the city of Hadera in north central Israel, a terror attack in which two Israeli citizens later found out that they were members of ISIS, managed to kill two Israeli soldiers and injure several other Israeli citizens. And we have with us today Amos Arel, Haaretz's senior national security analyst, to discuss this painful event and the broader issue of ISIS activity in Israel. Hello, Amos. Hi, Amir. Thank you for joining us. First of all, this is the second attack within a week in which we see this phenomenon of Israeli Arab citizens who swear allegiance to ISIS. This is a problem that many of us did not really have on the top of our minds uh, until the first of the attacks last week in Beersheba. Why are we seeing this exploding right now? Well, in fact, uh, ISIS even uh, claimed uh, responsibility through its uh, press agency um, during the, this, uh, previ- the previous night. We don't know exactly. I would assume that these are ISIS uh, supporters. It's not necessarily that these people, that the perpetrators in both the attacks actually received any kinds of uh, orders or guidance from, from the outside. Uh, they could be ISIS followers radicalized through internet and later on through uh, spiritual, religious, local leaders and so on. In both cases, they have a past with ISIS. And the attacker in Beersheba uh, was in fact jailed for four and a half years since uh, 2015 because he was in contact with ISIS and actually tried to join them, join the fight in uh, Syria and was uh, arrested by the Israelis. One of the terrorists uh, last night in Hadera also tried to go to Syria through Turkey, was arrested. I'm not sure for how long he was actually detained by the Israelis. But in both cases, these were well-known, radicalized ISIS activists. They were known to the Israeli authorities. And part of the problem right now is to try and understand why the Shin Bet uh, were not able to identify uh, those people before they actually attacked innocent Israelis, both in Beersheba and Khadil. And regarding the timing, do you think this has to do perhaps with the uh, summit, uh, the diplomatic gathering of uh, the Arab foreign ministers uh, that came to Israel, uh, to what we've been calling the Negev summit? Uh, maybe it has more to do with uh, the uh, month of Ramadan approaching. Uh, what do you think caused these two attacks to take place uh, right now, uh, one after the other, uh, and really bring us back to very dark days in the Israeli public uh, memory? Uh, where week after week, uh, in overall, six Israelis are killed in terror attacks. Look, it, it's probably all of the above. Uh, regarding the timing of the attack yesterday night, it's quite clear that it was meant to overshadow the Negev summit. It happened uh, immediately uh, before they were about to, to appear on TV, the different uh, foreign ministers. Uh, the attack last week, I'm not sure about the actual timing. It may have to do with Ramadan approaching. It may have to do with some kind of incitement uh, from the outside. 
But also, I think to, we have to consider the fact that ISIS, after years of being in retreat, is in a sort of reemergence. And some of, the, of this has to do with the larger picture of what happened in Afghanistan last year. After years and years in which uh, the Americans were able to push ISIS out of both Central uh, Asia and uh, the Middle East, their uh, retreat from uh, Afghanistan meant a victory for radical uh, Islamists everywhere. This was Taliban and not ISIS, but one would assume that ISIS supporters would find this inspiring in order to organize uh, some attacks of their own. We've seen similar involvement in, in, in different countries around the world. This may have to do with the, the, the larger picture as well. What I'm not sure about is whether this is directly connected to the Palestinian conflict. The immediate intuition would be, okay, this is because of the occupation, this is because of the situation in Gaza, the West Bank, and so on. But in fact, in both cases, uh, as you said, the perpetrators were Arab-Israelis with no direct contact to the Palestinian conflict. We've seen, in fact, both the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah and the Hamas regime in Gaza sending messages to Israel, telling them, look, this is not us. We're, uh, we want uh, Ramadan to pass uh, as calmly as possible because we've had two terrible uh, Ramadans in recent years, one because of COVID and the other because of the military operation in Gaza. The escalation last May happened, Operation Guardian of the Walls happened in the beginning of Ramadan. So they want something else this time. So it seems to be a sort of a private agenda for the terrorists themselves and maybe uh, some kind of Daesh agenda, some kind of ISIS agenda behind the scenes. But it, as far as we can tell right now, this is not connected directly to the uh, ongoing conflict uh, regarding Israel and the Palestinians. And in a way, that makes it actually more difficult for Israel to respond, right? Because if there is a terror attack directed by Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, you have an organization to attack. If something comes out of some uh, Palestinian city, uh, the military can uh, make arrests or put some kind of a closure. But what can Israel do when the terrorists are Israeli citizens who come out of towns where you also have thousands of uh, regular citizens, people who are not uh, connected in any way to this uh, and are living their lives? Well, on the other hand, I think maybe we should be thankful that the Palestinians are not directly involved because there's a lower chance of escalation during Ramadan with the Palestinians. I know that the army is very cautious about possible events, both on the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. They've actually decided to send four more battalions to the territories in order to prepare themselves for a possible escalation. But yes, the, the focus right now would be on Arab Israelis, and you cannot deal with more than a million Arab Israeli citizens as if they're all possible suspects. This is not the case when it comes to Israeli citizens. I think that Shin Bet would have to go back and check what went wrong, how come two of the three perpetrators were supposed to be under some kind of uh, Shin Bet civilians and still managed uh, to go ahead uh, with their plans. Uh, they've already made some arrests, mostly in Umar Fakhem, with a possible connection to the attack uh, yesterday in uh, Khadera. Um, I could guess that there will be more arrests and that Shin Bet would uh, try to be very thorough about this, trying to investigate more and more suspects. I, I, one could assume that this would end with dozens of uh, suspects arrested, people who might have known something about the, the, the possible plans of the traders or people who are involved in some other kind of ISIS activity or anything like that. 
right now it seems to be isolated cells. I can't talk of a phenomenon uh, yet. Uh, but what we're, we're always worried about, uh, naturally, is the possibility that some people would be inspired by this and try attacks uh, of their own. I, I think we have to make the distinction between the two different attacks. Remember the, the kind of weapons being used. Last week, it was uh, a lone wolf attack, one perpetrator with a car and a knife that he took from his own kitchen, and that's it. He went on, on this rampage in order to kill uh, innocent Israeli civilians in Beersheba. Yesterday night in Khadera, the two attackers seemed much more organized. Uh, look at the videos. Uh, they're horrifying. But you, what you can see are, I, I wouldn't say exactly professionals, but these are people who have been trained before using weapons, who seem to be quite cool and cultivated under uh, uh, pressure or in control of the situation. They actually came with lots of ammunition for M16 for uh, what we call 5.56 millimeters uh, ammunition without actually having the weapons. So they went along with an original plan. Uh, They waited till the uh, passengers left the bus, decided to attack two soldiers by surprise, killed both of them, a man and a woman, then stole their weapons, which were M16s, and then using their own ammunition that they came with to begin with, started shooting all over the, the place. Thankfully, uh, and the only reason why this didn't end up in a massacre with uh, 10 or more dead Israelis is the fact that at a restaurant nearby, a few policemen who are part of an elite unit that usually serves in the West Bank uh, were there eating dinner and they heard the noise, they heard, heard the gunshots. Uh, they are much more trained than other soldiers or policemen to deal with such a situation. If you'd like, it's urban uh, warfare and they came along within a minute um, somewhere between 60 to 90 seconds and they managed to kill both the attackers other than that if it had taken more time if uh, we would have had to wait for you know i don't know the average policeman on patrol to arrive there or anything like that by car this would have taken a few more minutes and probably more and more innocent lives would have been lost Amos, how concerned are Israeli security officials right now about the possibility also of Jewish extremists responding to this event with their uh, own violent attacks on Arab Israeli citizens or Palestinians? If we go back last year to the events of uh, Ramadan and the war with Gaza, we did see that kind of phenomenon emerge. Listen, I don't know yet. Uh, This could happen. I wouldn't um, uh, compare exactly between the two. Um, There's much more uh, violent sentiment among ISIS and Hamas supporters than uh, there is uh, among a number of possible Israeli Jewish terrorists. Uh, But we have seen before, as you mentioned, during the the latest operation in Gaza last May, there were quite a lot of... uh, incidents of uh, violence. I think that the fact that this happened inside the 1967 borders and not at some West Bank settlement may help us with the situation, may help the police to calm things down right now. But yes, there could be some kind of a retaliation, perhaps trying to uh, hit at uh, Palestinian or Arab shops, cars, uh, houses, and so on. We've seen in the past uh, attacks against mosques. Uh, We've seen, as usual, the ultra-right-wingers coming to the scene of of the crime, actually trying to to gain immediate political um, um, benefits from the situation, uh, attacking the the Minister of uh, 
Homeland Security and so on. But I, I would assume that the police still has the upper hand. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, and hopefully we won't see a repeat of this with more attempts to attack, with more copycat attacks. But I, I think still the police and Shinbet could grasp uh, the situation. And I think that, um, you know, full-scale turmoil could still be prevented, but we'll have to wait and see. Well, we definitely hope that uh, this will be the case. I'm also, El, thank you very much for joining us. And we encourage the listeners to continue following the coverage on Haaretz.com and read Amos's analysis on these painful events. Thank you, Amos. Thank you, Emil. Up next, a conversation with former Israeli lawmaker Ksenia Svetlova on the war in Ukraine. Our guest today is Ksenia Svetlova, an Israeli foreign policy expert, a former member of Knesset, and a fellow at the Mitvim Institute for Israeli Foreign Policy. And with her, we're going to discuss one month of the Ukraine war, what we have learned, what we can expect, and what Israel's policy should be moving forward. Hi, Ksenia. Hi, Amir. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. When this whole thing started, did you believe that we would be recording more than 30 days later and Kiev would still be standing? Actually, no. Uh, you know, I uh, was sure that the Ukrainians are going to give a big fight, a good fight, because I knew that the army underwent uh, very significant changes during the last eight years. And it's nothing of uh, what the Ukrainian army used to be in 2014. And yet, I think that uh, all of us, and also all military experts all over the world, estimated that the Russian army would uh, perform much better than it did. And so... What do you think is the reason for the fact that we still see Kiev free, Zelensky is still there, uh, running the show at least to some degree, and in fact the Russians have not taken any of Ukraine's largest cities so far. Is it more a fault of the Russian military's capabilities? Is it the courageous fight of the Ukrainians? Maybe some other factors? I think there are many factors. If there were a strategy of taking over Ukraine in three days and succumbing Kiev and uh, taking uh, the control here, well, this plan obviously failed. Uh, but we don't know if there was such a plan. For now, I think that perhaps uh, the Russians are focusing on some other goals. We see that uh, their main push is in uh, southeastern Ukraine. And uh, that's what they do. And uh, there they succeed much better than, of course, in the north. I don't think that they even went for Kiev significantly during this uh, whole month. But what they do in the southeastern uh, Ukraine, this is what is important. They are taking over the seaports. This is the air of uh, the Ukrainian economy. Uh, they cannot breathe without it. I think today we don't know how will the story end, of course. But uh, it's very difficult to see that the sports are going back to Ukraine in the foreseeable future. And perhaps uh, this is all about this for now. In comparison to the warfare in Syria, the use of indiscriminate fire was much more significant in Syria. And probably I think uh, that uh, if uh, they would act in the same fashion, we would not see today uh, anything uh, remain in Kharkov or in Mariupol at all. Also the courageous fight of the Ukrainians and also the steadfast of the population. We do not hear from the population cries to succumb and to surrender and to say, well, you know, we are done with this. We cannot suffer anymore. So uh, what you're saying here raises some interesting questions. I, I'll try to address them one by one. First of all, it seems like we are, the, it, it, you know, listening to you speak about the importance of the ports that are being uh, taken by Russia. Maybe we are looking at some kind of a very long uh, war of attrition economically with the U.S. and other Western allies 
hurting the Russian economy via sanctions, and Russia suffocating the Ukrainian economy by shutting off the seaports. And then there's a question of who will suffer more and maybe who will break first. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the Russians uh, also very carefully, they repeat, but like in mirror, everything that U.S. Is, says or does. And uh, when uh, it introduces sanctions against Russia, so the Russians are saying at the same time that they also have to decapitate the Ukrainian military. How they can do it? Also by, you know, destroying Ukrainian uh, economy. Totally. So and uh, this is how they weaken the regime. And perhaps... The end game is to turn Ukraine into a failed state. Certainly, you know, this kind of failed state presents some danger. But uh, in the Russian worldview, it's not the same. It cannot be equaled to, for example, a partner in uh, NATO. What can the U.S. and the West then do to help Ukraine uh, in the face of this kind of pressure? Well, this is a one billion <laughs> dollar question, I think. Yes, Maybe, first of all, send a billion dollars all mm-hmm. the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think that if... Uh, The control over the seaports will continue. Uh, even the one bi- billion dollars will not be enough in order to salvage uh, the Ukrainian uh, economy. Uh, and again, uh, we are still not there. Although we do hear more often Russian officials talking about control of Donbas and connecting Donbas with Crimea as their uh, goal and uh, their militarization, they believe that this stage they already over it because they destroyed significant number of airfields. Uh, they damaged the capabilities of the Ukrainian army uh, and they prevented, or so they think, from Ukraine to join NATO. So I think this is a very important question. How in the end, we are talking now about mediation, possibilities of uh, resolving the situation, will the demand for bringing back the troops and liberating all of the Ukrainian cities that were captured now during this uh, war uh, will be on the table because we do not hear it so far. I think it's reasonable to assume that Ukraine will not join NATO. But what about Kherson, for example? Mm-hmm. You know, so this it can, it can you know, sound maybe less important uh, in the... Like global picture. Zel- Zelensky, I think, said that Ukraine will not give up any of its territory mm-hmm. in order to achieve peace with Russia. At least that's his current position. Well, you know, politicians say things. He certainly is supported uh, in this. And also the Ukrainian inner polls show that uh, this is what uh, the Ukrainian people want. They do not want to give any land. And there is less support now for any territorial compromise than before the war. And yet the war has to end at some point. And there will be some compromise. The question is whether, you know, the West will have enough tools to force uh, Russia to give back the land that it captured. And we know also from the Israeli story that once you capture something, well, usually it's uh, very difficult to see it go back. Yeah, sometimes you give it up and sometimes you keep it with all the troubles that it causes you. It's the Israeli experience. Turning now to Russia itself, though, um, how do you assess the situation over there? month into the fighting with the crushing sanctions with the exodus that we saw of people leaving Moscow and St. Petersburg and other parts of the country well first of all we have to acknowledge that the people who are leaving they are not a representative of the average Russian they uh, originate uh, in the thin layer of intellectuals journalists for example in my milieu I have tons of people who left during this month who who never thought that they would be forced to leave. They intended to stay there and fight, but now they understand. F- fight against Putin. Fight against Putin, absolutely. But, uh, you know, during the last uh, month, 
800 media outlets were closed by Putin. So I think that many of them realized that it's a mortal danger to stay and it's impossible to also fight him from within because your arms are basically tied. Are there people who are living who are not necessarily politically uh, active and involved against Putin, just people who work in... Uh Whether it's, uh, you know, academia or culture, maybe, maybe I don't know, doctors, people in uh, high tech, people who have basically maybe the background that makes it easier to immigrate outside of the country. Well, yeah, right. And especially the modern nomads, uh, the high tech people, they are leaving and uh, there are already evidence that. that the Russians are trying to keep them from leaving and they're checking in the airports. Uh, they interrogate them. They ask them, so where do you work? Why do you have a laptop? Well, you know, uh, everybody has a laptop, laptop these days. Uh, and uh, a few people, uh, they were interrogated in this fashion. They eventually left. And so so the, the Russian problem. regime is concerned about this brain drain to some degree. Absolutely, because, uh, you know, now they will need them more than ever. Russia lacks practically everything. You know, I'm al- often asked about why uh, a power that is a global power uh, cannot produce hygiene products for women, for example, yes? And I say Russia doesn't produce almost anything, you know, alone, because in the global system, You don't do this, you know, you do not produce your own train. Uh, you have the, for example, the uh, metal, you know, it's from Russia, but you have the computers and the chips, they're from Taiwan. Yes. Uh, and so they, they need absolutely everybody, all the brains that they have. And yes, people are leaving. And the sanctions themselves and the damage that they're causing to the Russian economy, do you think that it has any impact on how Putin is looking at this war one month in? maybe regretting to some degree some of the steps that he took looking for a way out do you think the sanctions play a role in this you know I recently learned that the first Western leader who implemented sanctions against a rival power was Napoleon against the British and uh, it didn't cause them to collapse of course although they are an island country and you would think they will just die of hunger there and they will have to succumb uh, this didn't happen and also no other power in the world until now collapsed uh, because of the sanctions also you know there is a problematics because none of them not northern Korea and not uh, Libya or Iraq of Saddam Hussein they were such an integral part of the global economy I think this effect will take some time it's not well felt yet there are some shortages but this is local it's not something that people feel at the average level of the average Russian not a lot of drinker uh, in Moscow they, that were ridiculed by in Putin's speech mm-hmm. okay so now they feel that they cannot have an access to the Western goods no the most of the Russians they have some mild access to their Western goods but the, when they will feel perhaps that there is no medicine and there are no spare parts for cars and there is already a shortage then uh, I think it will uh, accumulate but it definitely will take time nothing happens you know over months to month from the American point of view it might actually be I think a very cynical uh, calculation but uh, a good situation to see Russia over time weekend and dealing with internal problems that's why I'm not sure the Americans mm-hmm. right now are very eager to end the war if, if the sanctions are working and weakening the Russian economy well you know it's really hard to answer this question because it's indeed it's a very cynical uh, analysis but we heard also Biden speaking openly. just a few days ago that this war will last for weeks and months and we should not expect uh, you know a quick uh, result and I think it's also it's reasonable because the Russians are not actively seeking the end of war uh, they are not you know so we saw no progress in negotiations so far neither in Belarus neither you know with Israeli mediation not in Turkey not even agreement on humanitarian ceasefire not even for a single day to exchange the bodies. 
You've been quite a lot on Israeli television and radio over the last weeks speaking about this war, and I think you have been asked this question many times before, but I will still pose it to you, and maybe today the answer will be different because more information is coming in. What does Putin want? Why, why did he start this war? Well, um, I would say that you know you have to focus on his worldview. Everything that he wants, it has to do with this picture of the world that is entirely different from what you and I see. And he sees uh, a huge threat uh, to Russia. Uh, everything that the West does, everything that, first of all, the United States and the NATO that it leads, he doesn't see Europe as a threat, yes? He wants to weaken Europe, that's correct. But uh, he, I think he sees himself as a rival only to the United States. That's also what he told before the war uh, uh, was launched. Uh, he said that he only, only wants to talk to Biden because he believes that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians are slaves and uh, the Americans are the masters. This is the worldview. Everything that is happening in post-Soviet republics and states, to him, uh, it's a great game of the West. Amer American him. conspiracy. Yes. Yes, uh, and uh, I think that, you know, probably at some point, the problem is that he st started believing his own propaganda. Mm -hmm. It happens to leaders sometimes, uh, autocratic leaders who do not have any variety of uh, voices in the milieu. And uh, the, what he wants to do now is, first of all, I, I think that's what the Iranian regime wants and the uh, uh, North Korean regime wants. He wants to stay in power. And he uh, uh, fears that uh, with anything less than a victory or something that he can present as victory, uh, he will be weakened inside the Russian uh, political system. And perhaps he will pay uh, with his rule and with his life for this. Yeah, if he loses the war, in a sense, mm -hmm. he does not retire to some dacha and have a, a happily nope. ever after kind of situation, right? No. But what's also important is the people who surround him He did everything possible that they will be also colored in the same colors of the crimes that he, he performed in different times. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have people who they walk with him for ages, like Lavrov, who is and, for and, 20 and, years And if there. he falls, they fall with him. Yeah, exactly. So they do not have, for now at least, incentive to break from him. So based on this analysis, does it make any sense for Israel, for Prime Minister Bennett, to keep up this mediation effort with a man who, in all likelihood right now, does not want... To reach an agreement you know he, he, he wants to win and <laughs> the cost is rising more and more you know it's really again it's really difficult to answer that because you know simply not enough information we don't know what is happening behind the closed doors but we do see that the ukrainians despite the speech of zelensky where he clearly said that you do not negotiate between the good and the evil but he still endorses these negotiations there is probably a reason why Because unlike the Russians, Ukrainians want this war to stop. Uh, they are bleeding. The, the price they are paying is heavier yes. than the Russians. Even though the Russians are also paying a heavy price, their cities are not being bombed right now and yes. turned into rubble. And uh, for Ukrainians, I think it's their first you know, uh, agenda. First thing, it's their agenda. They need this war to stop. And I think that they do not perhaps believe that there is some leverage that uh, Israel can use over uh, Russia. But since it can create an environment that will be comfortable enough for the Russians to speak, and also because Israel is connected to the United States, obviously, uh, that's why I believe that they still support. But when we will understand from them that uh, they despaired and they do not think that it's a good idea, it will be a good time to step down because we do not want to be associated with a uh, you know, bloody regime that... Uh, Uh, just uh, stalls for the time and uh, to yeah, the, there, continue th with atrocities. I think there definitely is this kind of fear that perhaps Putin was using Israel in a way 
to try to create some kind of illusion of a diplomatic process when in fact he's continuing to drop bombs on Mariupol and now Lviv and uh, really doing horrible uh, crimes in uh, Ukraine. And uh, I, I totally understand the, the argument. Prime Minister Bennett, on the other hand, says, because the war is so atrocious, I feel a duty to try to do anything I can to stop it. Well, again, you know, we do not know um, what, um, what are the considerations also in the White House. There were some uh, leaks uh, that uh, of support that indicated on support of this move. And although I can tell you that, frankly, personally, I was very skeptical uh, about this trip to Moscow. I don't think that maybe you don't need to go to Moscow to mm-hmm. because we more or less know, you know, what's his worldview. You mm-hmm. understand it. Uh, but I also believe that Israel indeed has a unique place. Uh, not as a mediator, because, but as an enabler, enabler of a dialogue, which is already something, you know. So, yes, yes. yes but of course, for Bennett, it's, it could be a huge gambit politically. Uh, well, if, if, if somehow he helps reach an agreement, wow. uh, yeah. you know, maybe he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it would help him politically here in Israel. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Israelis, I think, are more concerned with yes, other Nobel things Nobel right Prize now. and zero mandates it will be you uh, know, sorry picture. There, there is an argument to make that if, if your political career is in a dire situation, at least you can win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> but I think this is, we're still far off and uh, Aaron, our producer, is laughing at the idea here. I want to ask you about the Israeli policy of uh, ambiguity in the early stages of the war. And, you know, even the fact that this weekend, before we were meeting, we saw reports that some uh, Holocaust memorial in Ukraine was damaged by Russian uh, shelling, um, not for the first time in this war. And officially, Israel says nothing about it. Putin talks about Zelensky, the, the, the Jewish mm-hmm. leader of Ukraine, uh, as if he's a Nazi, and Israel has nothing to say about it. I have to tell you, I, I do not expect Israel to take sides in the war. Mm-hmm to support one side or the other. I understand there are all kinds of considerations. This issue specifically, I feel bad about it. The, the fact that the Jewish leader of another country is under such an attack and Putin cynically uses the Holocaust this way and Israel has nothing to say about it. I feel bad too about it. And I think that if we are looking at another Middle Eastern country that also has an aspirations uh, in the area of mediation, which is Turkey, they take much more liberty at everything regarding Ukraine than Israel does. They supply weapon to the Ukrainians. The drones that the yes, Ukrainians have used Raktar. masterfully. Yes, and uh, they uh, they close the straits, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelli. So what else, you know? So uh, for Israel, as a country that was created out of the ashes of the Holocaust, to at least condemn the killing of Jews that is happening in Ukraine today, every time then Israel says it's our obligation to protect the Jews. Perhaps we are keeping this ambiguity because we want to protect the Jews in Russia and in Ukraine. But the Jews in Ukraine are already dying. Mm-hmm. They are di- dying, you know, in the result of this uh, vicious attacks. Israel should, uh, of course, uh, have more moral courage to say clear and direct things. And I think that Russia is using the, the fact that we are not saying them, that uh, this use of uh, Nazification, denazification is very damaging to the story that Israel wants to explain to the world about the danger of Nazism, about the real danger, about what happened to Jews in the Holocaust. Uh, and here, when it's so cheaply used, 
uh, for the sake of the propaganda. I think it's the most dangerous development that can happen in this regard. You know, it doesn't have to address every demand of the Ukrainian side because, yes, it has its own foreign policy. Like uh, Iron security. Dome, for example, yes. which we, I think, also saw is not really relevant. In it's a not sense. really relevant in any case, but, you know, also other things. Okay, so, I don't know, Pegasus, you know. Yeah, the, the, spy, the spyware. Not, yeah. no, there are other spywares, and I know that, you know, they have... Uh, good sources, you know, via the Western intelligence and so on. But I think that Israel can be morally much more clear about wrong and right, this denazification slur, of course, and uh, also in its policy towards the refugees and the immigrants. You know, it can do actually a lot also for its own image, for the sake of its own so, image. So let's talk about that a bit. And you also wrote for us at mm-hmm. Haaretz.com mm-hmm. about how Israel uh, is addressing the refugee crisis Um, what do you think we should be doing differently? What refugee crisis? Israel doesn't recognize uh, refugees. So, you know... From uh, Ukraine. From Ukraine well, or from any ho- other place. Which the, the whole world right now is, is, is yes. really taking a stand here. And we're seeing... That Biden just announced that the U.S. will take 100,000. We're seeing countries yeah. in Europe flooded with people from Ukraine. And yeah. then in Israel... In Israel, they are being recognized as tourists. They are entering on the tourist visa. They, I think this is the most absurd policy that you can ever imagine. And also, if you are already allowing people in, even if they are not much, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, uh, and you do not give them opportunity to get employment here, to win their bread, to send their children to kindergarten, and to have minimal or standard health care, as the state's supposed to do, according to the Geneva Convention and according to other conventions that is signed upon, the Refugee Convention, I think that uh, this is absurd. First of all, it's wrong. And we know very well, as a nation of refugees, that uh, what does it mean when the refugees are mistreated? And the second thing is, of course, is we create a massive problem by our own hands. So th- we will have a massive concentration of the refugees who will, fi- will help try to help some kind of employment in southern Tel Aviv yet again. After a few years, it will explode. Everybody will say, wow, how did it happen? And here is the roots. You know, we, we see it now. I, I have to say that I agree with everything you said. And, and I personally was heartened by seeing a lot of Israelis who are trying to help the refugees in all kinds of ways, including paying the sums of money that the refugees have to pay in order to enter the country. Mm-hmm. And there was this online mobilization of people to pay from their own pockets mm-hmm. these sums of money to help these families of refugees enter the country. And yet I do think that the government will have to find more clear guidelines and a real policy to address this issue, which really all the world is, uh, is addressing right now. Um, but there is also a question of what will happen with Jews from Russia. Uh, and you mentioned that earlier that you've know a lot of people who have left that country now. Uh, do you expect some kind of a new Aliyah wave from there as well? I think that this is already happening. And what I've heard from people from the Ministry of Interior, that there are actually more Olim right now from Russia than from Ukraine. Hmm, Because, uh, you know, people from Ukraine, they are running away, you know, from shelling and from massacre. And people from Russia, they are, you know, running away because then they understand that their country is over. It has no future. So you see a lot of very bright, many of them young people with good experience. And you have absolutely zero policy of klitat aliyah, of absorption of this uh, new wave. Because every wave is different. Every wave, it has its own needs. You have here highly skilled individuals who will just need a little help, you know, in having to introduce them to Israeli society. And language. Language, the job market. How can they adapt and contribute? Because they don't want to be dependent. And there is also another consideration. Uh, many of them have also chances to live after that. 
and to end up in Canada or in the United States. We, we, the question is, do we want Israel to be their home or mm-hmm. a station on the way to somewhere exactly. else? Exactly. And I think that the best thing that there is, we have in Israel is the human capital. That's what allowed us to grow and develop. And now you have this another wave of Aliyah that can be so contributional and uh, you do not do anything in order to adapt. I'm not talking even about the lack of clerks of the you know, Ministry of Interior. And you need, you need to expand this, you know, because uh, we are uh, moving from mo- mode of almost no Aliyah to mode of big Aliyah, you know. So you have to get o- Almost this. overnight. And there is a question of state and religion because many, many, I think the majority of those who come, Yes, they are not Galactic Jews. You have to understand it. They are Jewish in, the, in terms of Israel's immigration policy, the law mm-hmm. of return, because they had at least one Jewish uh, grandparent. But halachically, they do not have a Jewish mother necessarily. We know this problem already from the <laughs> previous Russian Aliyah <laughs> that came in the 90s, but it could uh, be on our doorstep again. Yes, we have 400,000 already of Israelis who cannot get married in their own country. And now you have, will have thousands more. Now it's the time, basically, yes, to... formulate policy on Aliyah, but also to change the norm on uh, you know state and religion and to try to promote the legislation that will allow uh, basic rights to people who right now they are welcome they are new Olim but let them try to get married here in this land no they will have to travel somewhere yeah we know this problem many of I think our listeners know it as well I uh, know many people personally who mm-hmm. had to do their, their weddings uh, outside of the country so we'll or see. chose to do or it, to so yeah, yeah. I, you know I for me and my wife we yes. chose to, to also do it because us. we didn't want to go through also the rabbinate also me and my husband yes yeah. also even, we chose even, to if, do if, it uh, even though we could and you know yes. my, my wife came here from Russia as a young child in the <laughs> Aliyah wave of the 1990s and I see for her all the emotions that this current situation is arousing what do you feel when you see these pictures of thousands of Jews coming here from Ukraine from Russia does it bring back memories yeah. what thoughts come to your mind well yes you know it's very personal I think that's the reason why I I uh, started to be so active about it you know I also of course you know I started uh, Russia in, in addition to my main profession which is Middle Eastern uh, studies but I also was concerned with Russia in the Middle East for the last few years but this war you know it's different this person the Russian president he now destroys free country at once you know he destroys mm-hmm. Ukraine he destroys Russia and he destroys Belarus not only that I have many friends you know and acquaintances but But these places are dear to me. Moscow is a fantastic city. You know, it's uh, very vibrant. You have a lot of energies there. And I do understand people who didn't want to leave, but they chose to stay there and try to change things for the best. And uh, I, I understand now that this is gone. It's like, you know, when we came in 91, we never knew whether we will be able to go back to visit. And uh, now again, it's like, you know, 30 years passed. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether I will be able to go again. And I don't have the answer for this. Quite a question. Ksenia Svetlova, thank you very much for joining us for this fascinating conversation thank on you. the war in Ukraine, um, the strategic angle, the Israeli angle. Um, and we invite the listeners to continue following the coverage on haaretz.com. Uh, we have a lot of great reporting and analysis coming up this week. So again, thank you, Ksenia. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you, listeners. My colleague, Alison Kaplan-Sommer, will be here again on Friday with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.